I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Our guest today spends her days organizing parents and fighting for significant changes in the public school system across Massachusetts. She has built a force of over 10,000 parents organized around a nonprofit which she founded called Massachusetts Parents United. Carrie Rodriguez, welcome. Hi, so nice to be here. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to see you too. It's been too long. I know. This is great. And I love being on this side of the microphone (laughs) because the last time we had you, uh, you were joining us in Massachusetts Parents United. So this is so much fun. So nice of you to do that. I really appreciated it. It was great. And and you came out to visit the My Way Cafes, which was wonderful too. Yes. And uh, it's one of my favorite memories, actually, uh, of you and me. We we have to talk about that. We had a good time. People see behind uh, the microphone here. Yes, that's a good point. It's a good point. Well, let's start at the beginning because I think um, our listeners want to know who you are and mm-hmm. why you do what you do, what compels you to do it. So can you just talk to us a little bit about your childhood? You grew up here and how you evolved as a person. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of an interesting story. And it's, it's so funny being public about it and talking about it yeah. because... Uh, you know, growing up in the Boston area and kind of culturally, you're always kind of taught like, oh, you know, don't talk about, you know, some of the things that happened when you were a kid. But yeah. now it's so powerful and it really it informs and inspires a lot of my work. So yeah. And um, a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's it's when you tell your own personal story. Yeah. Um, I, I think so often we feel so isolated and right. so lonely and so shameful. Right. And, um, you know, when you share your personal story, you break through that and That's you right. find so many other people that have come, you know, things in common with you that you never would have known yeah. before. So, um, you know, I grew up in a home that dealt with a lot of substance abuse. Um, you know, I was a former foster kid mm-hmm. and went through the system and, um, I eventually, you know, I was a very smart kid, but I was very angry, uh, angry about all of the things that were happening around me. So I actually, um, you know, got into a lot of trouble, used to talk back. <laughs> yeah. It was not always using my brain for... Very natural yeah, responses. Exactly. I, w- I was always an organizer, organizing other folks to get in trouble too. Um, but I actually ended up uh, getting expelled from from my uh, public high school. Okay. And What uh, year was that? What year were you in um, in high school? Was, I, I was class of 1996. This is probably 1994, 95. Okay. Yep. Um, and then I got my GED from... From BPS at Jackson Mann. Okay. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I was very lucky to have some very strong mentorship. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually started off in broadcast journalism, and one of my mentors was David Brudnoy from WBZ in Boston. Oh my goodness. And he was a huge hero of mine and was so good to me and and helped get me into Temple University in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. where I studied broadcast journalism and, you know, came across a lot of wonderful so mentors. He so. saw in you a great communicator, I would imagine, because you are a great communicator. Well, from the very beginning, it was very funny. I used to love listening to WBZ in Boston. Yeah. And so when I was six or seven, and, and people in my family would listen to it, because like, why would a, a little kid be listening right. to WBZ? But I loved David Rudnoy, and I used to fall asleep to him even when I was a kid. Aww. And so he would encourage people to call in. So I would call in <laughs> and I was seven and I called in and he, re- he remembered this. Um, and I wanted to talk about affirmative action because oh I felt goodness. very differently from David. Huh. And I wanted to talk to him about yeah. it. And uh, he talked to me about it off the air because they were like, this kid is calling in because I would oh. call all the time. 
And so he would talk to me off the air. And when I was 12, he had me in for a whole hour. Oh, my goodness. And he became a mentor to me. And I used to go to his home studio. And, uh, you know, when he was very, very sick, I was on one of his last shows. Wow. And I was a reporter. I was a news reporter in Providence oh at the time. Gosh. And I'll, I'll never forget, it was Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Then it was me on his show, and okay. I was crying my eyes out in the newsroom because I just loved him with my whole heart. Oh. He had done so many things for me. And then it was Ted Kennedy. So it was very strange for me to be in that lineup of people. What were you talking about? Just how we loved David and, and yeah. saying goodbye to him. You know, he was, I think he was in Mass General at the time listening to the show, and it was a tribute show, and oh, they lined us all goodness. up to just say goodbye. And, you know, all during the course of my college career, he would have me come in because people wanted an update yeah, on this absolutely. Kid What's going on? In. And um, so he was so generous with me, but he really pushed me into uh, making sure that I, d I didn't fall through the cracks because I was a kid that was being totally pushed into the cracks. The, the system had completely given up on me. And he just saw me as a bright kid that just couldn't conform the way they wanted me to conform. And I was growing up in really difficult circumstances. Yeah. And so um, I was just blessed to have him in my life. And, it, you know, the results of that are, are still happening yeah. in my life. I'm, I'm always going to be grateful. Well, it's extraordinary that, so that in the work that we've been doing over the past three years, there's so many people, you know, younger kids and then adults who have grown up in circumstances like you describe and have found their way out of those circumstances through every effort of their own, but also by finding, receiving mentors on the other side. And it, it, it creates all these beautiful stories, but there's an incredible amount of energy that goes into yeah, kind of evolving into it, who you can become. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I always try to think about that, you yeah. know, and be very mindful of that. Like yeah. the people who who opened doors for me and held doors open for me because I always am trying to look behind me to make yeah. sure I'm doing the same for other people. And that's kind of how I point. stumbled into this work. You know, honestly, I, I was a broadcast journalist. I had done, I had hosted my own political talk show, but I, I it wasn't enough to talk about things. Yeah. You know, I, I loved the community organizing we were doing on the air, but I wanted to do it for real. Yeah. So I started working at SEIU. Right. Um, organizing healthcare workers, working across the country, helping communities to organize. But at the same time, I found that I was losing a campaign for my own kids. And mm. I'm a single mom of three little boys. Right. And my oldest has Asperger's and ADHD. Mm -hmm. And I knew from a very young age that he was going to have some trouble. Was he diagnosed early on with Asperger's and ADHD? Or did that did that diagnosis come through you trying to understand it's the really issues that he was having? It's really been an evolution. Mm -hmm. So it started off where, um, you know, we knew he had some sensory processing mm -hmm. issues. Like a, a mama knows, you yeah, know. And I know. They it's can't amazing. deal with the sounds and, you know, certain textures and, you know, just the food that they eat. We always knew that Matthew was going to have some issues. We had to figure out what. Right. Because, you know. You know, when they hand you a baby, they don't hand you a book saying, okay. It's really you know, unfortunate. And you don't realize that until they hand you the baby. And no, you're you, like, you got to figure it out. Yeah. So I knew there were going to be issues, but I advocate for people. Like yeah. that's in my DNA. Yeah. Like that's what I do and right. what I was teaching other people to do. So I knew this kid was going to be fine. Yeah. So at 18 months old, early intervention, you know, getting him set up with an IEP. Mm -hmm. But then by the time he was in kindergarten, mm. you know, I'm sitting at the end of an IEP table mm. and I'm surrounded by educators who had already given up on my kid. It's unbelievable. Five years old. Yeah. And he had been suspended 36 times in kindergarten. Because that was, that was the only tool that they felt like that they had. Well, that and they kept putting him in this redirect room, the mm. redirect room, which was 
basically like a cinder block cell. Oh no. Um, to, you know, it was supposed to be like sensory deprivation, like take him out of the classroom where he was overstimulated. But the fact of the matter is the real problem yeah. is that he had a first year temporary kindergarten teacher, first time in a classroom, yeah. you know, with a probably 25 kids in the class, mm-hmm. completely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You've got a kid with an IEP. Mm-hmm. And the IEP wasn't implemented. Yeah. Because Matthew, he's not a bad kid. Right. You know, he is impulsive. Yeah. Doesn't want to sit at the rug at rug time. Yeah. Wants to go play with the musical instruments. That's not a reason why we should be suspending a kid. No, of course not. You know, he's five years old. No, and, and with the right training and the right methodology, there's no reason that he would need to not walk around while other kids were sitting also. Yeah, and, and you know, I've come to find out mm. that it's not even natural for little boys to sit. No. Like what we try to teach them and how we try to conform, like that's not a natural thing. So right. it's, it's, ex, it's just an extraordinary effort for a generally matriculating student to sit down at a rug when right. you're five years old. Right. But a kid with autism and ADHD, man, not that's like tough. That. So you were so you were organizing healthcare workers at the time that this was all happening, and so you be, were becoming very aware that this same skill set was needed for moms who were dealing with issues around education. I remember sitting at the end of that table mm-hmm. and just being stunned, you know, and and looking around and saying, "Oh my God, all these kids are aggravated with my, or all of these educators are aggravated with yeah. Matthew." They're really annoyed. Yeah. And I have to leave him with these people. Yeah. And um, they all have master's degrees. They all are supposed to be telling me what to do, and I'm really overwhelmed. Yeah. And I remember sitting there and thinking about, you know, my husband mm-hmm. and his mother, who's undocumented, doesn't speak any English, mm-hmm. and the experience I went through and he went through. Um, you know, my husband was brilliant. He recently passed away. but. Yeah. Um, he had a mind like a human calculator. You know, this is a guy who probably should have gone to MIT. Literally, I mean, just brilliant. Like, uh. could do math in his head. Couldn't get out of the first semester of Bunker Hill Community College. Interesting. You know, because they just had never unlocked what he needed to right. really achieve his first potential, or his, his, you know, potential. True potential, yeah. True potential. Uh. And then, you know, I, I can just remember sitting at the end of that table saying, like, oh, this makes sense. Yeah. Like, I don't have any power here. Right. All of these people sitting around have the power. Very And scary. they can make decisions for, for my baby. Yeah. And I feel like this is wrong, but I, I feel like I couldn't speak up. And I didn't, even if I could speak up, what, what am I going to ask for? What am I going to do? Right. And there's no power. And then I'm thinking about all of these people in my family. Yeah. You know, that don't have, and, and at the time yeah. that I'm sitting at this table, you know, I'm a former broadcast journalist. Right. At the time, I was the chair of the Somerville Democrats. I'm on the Democratic State Committee. I'm on the Democratic National Committee. Mm-hmm. I know all of these fancy elected officials. Right. I've done all of this work. I have all of this agency and privilege, and I speak beautiful English and all. Yeah. And I can't get it done. And I can't figure out how to solve so this. So people in my problem. family, it just makes sense. Yeah. You know, of course. And if I'm feeling overwhelmed, they're feeling overwhelmed. So when I get mad... Mm. And I start to get that feeling. Mm. I start to organize. Like, mm-hmm. that's just that's just what I do. And I start to have conversations. And we started to have conversations with other moms in libraries yeah. and at Dunkin' Donuts yeah. saying, do you feel like this? You know, I feel like this. What do you do? Like, those natural connections that we have as mamas. Yeah. Like, 
that started to happen. And I said, you know, I couldn't find what I was looking for. I was like looking out to the Massachusetts PTA and all of these groups that I thought were supposed to be helping parents. And I couldn't find anybody who was actually helping parents. Who could actually come and sit by you and represent you and help you lobby for what you needed. Lobby for what I needed, teach me about what I needed to ask for mm-hmm. and what the process was mm-hmm. to help me to, to build my confidence and my backbone. Mm-hmm. And then outside of that, you know, understanding why the process was the way it was. Right. Like, why is it so unjust? Why don't I have a voice? Right. You know, why am I not in the, this is my baby. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is, this is my heart living outside my body and I have no way to, to fight for him. But I talk didn't a, get it. And talk a little bit more deeply about that because you, in reading a lot of the interviews with you, you know, you often talk about these bringing these three beautiful brown boys into the world, and and by that very specific characteristic, they are on a potential path for school to prison. Yeah, and that is, that is and much I more had... so than the average kid. And can you talk yeah. a little bit about it's heartbreaking that framing. Yeah, yeah, and and discovering that yeah. is really heartbreaking. Yeah, because. You know, it makes you reflect on your own lived experience, sure. like, and being pushed out of school and being kind of tossed away. I was one of those kids. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really matter if she succeeds or not. She's probably going to end up pregnant and on welfare and, like, mm-hmm. just totally pushed away and mm-hmm. disregarded. Right. Um, and I could start to see that happen with my kids, and I could tell by the tone and how I was treated at those tables. Yeah. Um, and how, how they talked about my children, yep. you know, by virtue of being Latino. And yeah. you always kind of sense that and yeah. you assume that, you know, but, it, you know, when you're confronted with it, it's, it's really stunning. Huh. I had no idea how critical it was for me to fight for my kids from the very beginning. And that is something that can be so heartbreaking yeah. for a lot of parents. Because for kids like mine, if we are not fighting to make sure our kids are reading Mm-hmm. At grade level by third grade, that's a prime indicator for the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. So if say I, that so that if kids are not reading at a particular level by third grade, then the yeah. potential to continue to be off track increases. Because what we've learned mm-hmm. is that there are county sheriffs that actually look at these literacy rates in third grade to be a predictor of yeah. what our prison populations are going to be 20 years in the future by taking a look at third grade literacy rates of black and brown children. That was stunning to me and terrifying to me as a parent because, again, they don't hand you a book and tell you how to pick a school or what you should be looking for. And frankly, as I've come to find out, they do a lot of work to hide from you the fact that schools are underperforming. So your neighborhood school that you might think logistically, oh, it's convenient, it's right there, but can't teach your child how to read. If at age four or five you're making the wrong decision and that school is not capable of helping your child achieve proficiency by third grade, you are going to be dealing with that consequence for the rest of their lives. Like you've already screwed up as a parent and the guilt of that yeah, and the shock of that yeah. for a lot of parents, it's, it's terrifying. It's and, heartbreaking. Right. Well, I was going to talk about this later, but let's, let's get right to it because we, you, as you came in, we were talking about the data that was presented to school committee right at the end of last year, which shows that 70% of kids in the city of Boston are underperforming on state by state standards. And, um, the mayor just had the State of the City address this week where he talked about how schools are really flourishing. 
and um, that there's $100 million in incremental revenue, which I wasn't sure what that meant, coming into the city um, to fund education. And, and so do, did, did you understand that completely? Is, that, is, is he talking about the state bill that the governor just signed, or what's the $100 million? There's going to be an influx of $100 million into Boston public schools because parents like the members of Massachusetts Parents United mm -hmm. just co-created, and literally parents wrote language to ensure that there was going to be more funding for every public school in the entire Commonwealth. Who, who but did you work with to do that? To actually write the legislation? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's very funny. We internally, um, we knew that there was going to be an education funding bill, but mm -hmm. we were very concerned about blank checks. Okay. Very, very concerned about it. And we knew that parents across the state were concerned about it because sure. uh, we watched some of the teachers unions actually hosting these little focus groups mm -hmm. and they'd, they'd come out with these big giant blank checks saying, we're, we're just going to flood these districts with money. And as parents, many of us survivors of the public education system, um, we know that, that, Districts aren't spending money well as it is. Right. Like a lot of money is wasted. It doesn't actually get to kids in the classroom. It doesn't actually help teachers in the classroom. Or, or the dollars aren't optimized. Exactly. I, I completely understand. It, it's a huge mean. problem. Yeah. So just flooding yep. additional, I mean, right. hundreds of millions of dollars into some of these districts. People who aren't responsible with money, aren't spending it well, and frankly have created a school-to-prison pipeline is not going to change and suddenly make systems equitable. Right. But I think yeah. a lot of people want to see instantaneous results. Sure. And we've got to we've got to make sure we manage folks' expectations. And, yeah. and certainly our members want to see turnaround right around and take some time for that to happen. But with this in particular, yeah. um, we knew what would happen. I mean if you are negotiating, you know, at the bargaining table and you know, you know, folks just got a big giant check yeah. that is not specifically targeted to anything, um, you're going to bargain over that money. Right. And it's going to be to benefit the wants of adults over the needs of children. We see this happen all the time. So you so were you were we fighting did, to add clarity to how oh, the dollars yes. would be spent. And and folks were so mad at us. Yeah. And we were totally fine with that because we had thousands of parents turn up at the state house. So what we decided to do was we knew we wanted more, but we wanted better. Mm -hmm. And Massachusetts Parents United is different from a lot of parent advocacy groups mm -hmm. because we're not just the muscle, we're also the brains. Mm -hmm. So we did our homework and we worked directly with some of the top, you know, political leaders in education um, and brought them in and said, you know, here are our ideas. This How is across the them? state. Across the state. Yep. And uh, we convened our parent council and we worked with Marty Walls, who mm -hmm. is our political advisor. And we said, Marty, these are the things that are important to us. We want accountability. Mm -hmm. We want transparency mm -hmm. and we want innovation because mm -hmm. we know those are the things that are going to help us to overcome the achievement gap. And here's specifically what we want to do. How do we make that happen? Yeah. Um, because parents aren't education policy experts, no, but we're smart enough to ask questions and to bring in the smartest people we know. Yeah. So we did that. And so when we walked in to the Joint Committee on Education, we knew because we, we know Alice Peich. We know Jason Lewis a little bit. Mm -hmm. we've, we've marched on the boss quite a few times. Mm -hmm. And we knew that they were going to turn around and say, okay, well, we see you. You're everywhere. You're, you're 
really everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. We literally shut down the state house at one point because we had so many parents and their parents they had never seen before. Because how you have member your membership is twelve thousand. We have twelve thousand. Right? We reach about two hundred and fifty thousand across the state every month. But members through that network. who actually take yeah. actions every single month with us, it's it's about twelve thousand. So we every time we would show up, it would be you know over a thousand folks or you know a couple hundred here for this hearing, a thousand here, which you is know, a lot of people. It's a to lot show of show up. And, yeah. you know, it's funny because sometimes the, the paper would not only write about what we were up there fighting for, but the fact that logistically we had shut the building down, yeah. which is which is a good problem as an organizer. Yeah. But you can't just show up in numbers. You right. have to know what you're asking for. So we had done our homework. And so when the joint chairs of the Committee on Education turned to us and said, well, what does accountability mean to you? Mm-hmm. What does transparency mean to you? Mm-hmm. We were able to literally hand them language and mm. say, this is what it means to us. This is what we, we want to see you pass. And they did it. It's amazing. They took our language and they put it in the bill. And then at the last minute, when they had kind of unveiled the bill and there was going to be discussion, uh, some of the, the folks that didn't want any accountability or transparency mm. were trying to kill it through amendment. Mm-hmm. And so we, we couldn't take our eye off the ball. We had to go back in there. We had to keep fighting and watching and holding them accountable and yelling at them in the Boston Globe saying, we're watching you. Yeah. We fought for this language. We told you what we wanted. We wrote it for you. You said you wanted to see us. We did everything that we were supposed to do. We we bargained with you in good faith. Yeah. You better do it or we're going to hold you accountable. And that's now, why we got what we wanted. Now, who is going to hold them accountable? For implementing? And how? Yeah. All right. That's a big task. Well, that's really the most important part of this. Because right. it's one thing like... To flex. Well, it's a big deal the, to get the language the into the, Right, right. Yeah. That's and, a big I deal. I mean, that's just step one, though. Yeah. Implementation is everything. Right. And it's critical because right. if you stop watching, like, they could really do anything. You yeah. know, they could, the three-year plans we fought for, one of the most important things that we fought for was having every district uh, come up with a three-year plan to overcome the achievement gap in mm-hmm. their communities mm-hmm. because some of these communities are in crisis. Right. I mean, black and brown children are learning next to nothing in these schools. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And so we fought for that. Now we have to look at the plans and determine whether or not they're actually going to do something tangible. Mm-hmm. So what we are doing in Massachusetts Parents United um, in our chapters across the state is we are we are training. We have a very rigorous training and curriculum that we are implementing starting in about two weeks where we are training watchdogs across the state to know what to look for in these plans, to make sure they're ready to organize and show up at school committees at the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. In fact, we moved our headquarters intentionally. We just moved from Boston, mm-hmm. in the heart of Boston. Mm-hmm. We just relocated our entire headquarters of Massachusetts Parents United. We are right across the street from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. We just set up a brand new parent center there um, that is ready for parents to use to organize because we will be there every single day that we need to be there at every single hearing, at every discussion. Because Massachusetts Parents United is now taking the seat and on many policy commissions at DESE because it's not just about getting the law passed. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure it's implemented. How do you how do you get the data you need to assess whether or not things are being implemented the way that they were meant to be implemented? So one of the most important things we fought for is transparency mm-hmm. and that all of these districts have to report. They have yeah. to report about certain metrics, okay. uh, metrics that are important to parents uh, without 
you know, being able to cherry pick. It's yeah. got to be transparent. So now there is a data council that is responsible for reviewing all of this information, making sure it's public. Mm. We fought to make sure that the commissioner would have to approve the plans. Mm. So it's not just about coming up with a plan because, you know, somebody could come up with a plan and say, okay, my plan for overcoming the achievement gap is to uh, increase reading scores by 2%. Right. Well, not approved. Right. So we want to make sure that Jeff has the power yeah. to say, no, this is not good enough. It's not rigorous enough. Uh, this plan doesn't make sense. We know it's not best practices. What you're suggesting is going to overcome or improve these rates. Yeah. Um, so all of that. So we are training. We have you know incredible staff of parent leaders um, who are not just parents but are warriors. Mm. We just brought on Natasha Maggie Madry, who's our brand new chief of policy. Um, she's a mama of five, uh-huh. so she's no joke. Yeah. And she's also a, an expert in education policy and is an attorney. Um, so. You know, we are training these warriors to make sure that um, we are going to be able to hold folks accountable for the promises that they have made to us. And we're not going away. Right. I think they were hoping we would go away. We're not going away. No, it seems like you're just getting bigger and more powerful. We are. Does that, for your average um, member, does that help them with the things that you talked about earlier when you were the mom sitting at one end of the table surrounded by people who held master's degrees who had given up potentially on your child. D- does that embolden that individual by, by being a member of this? And, and how does being a member of, of your organization help them in, in those sorts of circumstances? Because uh, it seems like it th- both things need to happen. We, the state needs to be held accountable for the promise that it's made to go along with the money that it's going to spend on moving the needle on the, on the um, achievement gap. But at the same time, each individual still has to sit in that chair. That and, is the most, one of the most important things that we do yeah. in Massachusetts Parents United. We do really big, bold, important things yeah. externally. Yeah. But the most important thing that we do yeah. is the internal work. Yeah. Uh, it is critical to me. Talk a little know, bit about how you do have. that. Because that's, that's a lot of manpower, too, to be supportive of so many individuals. When you, One of the things I was reading that you said was... Um, you know, the majority of underperforming schools in the state also are the majority of schools that are attended by black and brown students. Mm-hmm. And so this is these are big numbers. And they're huge numbers. Right, right, where we're failing our kids. That's right. right and, our, and our kids may have needs, right, on top of kind of just your, the hope that you're meeting standards, right? Mm-hmm. Where, so these schools aren't even meeting standards, but like let's assume you hope they meet the standards. And then you have kids who have incremental needs on top of that. And so that's a, those are a heavy, that's a heavy lift for any individual parent. It is. And that's, you know, part of the emotional process of Massachusetts Parents United that I don't think people always get. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have a chapter system, so we run very similar to a, a union organizing model. Like mm-hmm. what I came up with here is not, you know, unique. It's not brain surgery. It's, it's relationship building. Right. So each individual community, and in Boston we have six chapters, so it's, it's even, you know, it's, it's down to the neighborhood oh, level Oh, interesting. Now. Okay. Um, so that folks, we, we've kind of become the 911 for parents. Oh, that's great. Um, so that when parents are in trouble, they know to call us. Mm-hmm. And they know that there's an MPU. If not in their city or in their neighborhood, there's somebody that they can get connected to. We get you know inquiries all the time from people saying... Yeah. Um, we, we need help in Haverhill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need help, you know, Lemonster and Fitchburg. We're starting a brand new chapter because the parents there, they just started one. They're like, we are an MPU chapter. Like, help that's us do great. that. So they opt into us. And it's, it's, that's a wonderful thing because yeah. parents are seeking 
this solidarity. And when they find out, there are parent warriors that will come with them mm. and hold their hands. It's not for me to, to parachute into anybody's community and sure, say, right. this is what you need to do. This is how you organize. This is what the problem is. You're going to talk about what I want to talk about. That's what makes us very different. Yeah. Like I go out and we have when we send parents out to have conversations with other parents and mm -hmm. talk to them about what's important. So folks look at us and, and have a lot of uh, misconceptions, I think, about what we are. Mm. Uh, our number one issue is is safer neighborhoods. OK. Yeah. I noticed that. Is that. Critical. Yeah. Um, number two. Critical because of the trauma that it induces to have an unsafe neighborhood or what, yeah, well just, tell me why that's the number one on your list. For, for parents like yeah. me yeah. that have grown up in the context that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, you just think about the hierarchy of needs. Right. Okay? Exactly. So my number one job in life yeah. is being Matthew Miles and David's mom. Right. Like bar none. Yep. That is, that is my most important and number one job. Keeping them alive right. is job number one as being a mommy. So food, so shelter, love, safety. Food, shelter, love, safety. Mm -hmm. So you think about, like, if I can't feel safe that my babies can walk down the street mm -hmm. without being shot, mm -hmm. stabbed, shot in school, all yeah. of those things, right. not picked up by ice, yep. that's a critical piece, too. Like, we can't talk about anything else. Yeah. If we don't have safe homes to live in. Mm -hmm. You know, we are being gentrified out of housing. There's not enough family affordable housing stock. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear about affordable housing. They're talking about one and two bedroom units. Families can't live in one and two bedroom units. Right. Um, food stability. Yeah. Why is nutrition so important to, to people like me, people like you? Yeah. Hungry kids cannot learn. Well, we and also this whole notion of, you know, we keep hanging our hats on this notion of hunger and food access and, and when, in fact, we're re it's really a malnutrition issue. Yeah. Right? Like, you, I mean, you can access sugar-laden food just about anywhere for almost zero dollars. So it, it's really about getting the right food to every individual, and we don't, we don't do that well and at all. And people dismiss... You know, families of color, people mm -hmm. who are living in poverty. Like, we don't care about the quality of food right. our kids are eating. I am curious if you've read Andrea Campbell's proposal for um, fixing the problems that we have in the Boston public school system. If you have, what do you think of it? Well, I will tell you that Massachusetts Parents United has been along with Andrea every step of the way, participating in all of her meeting, making sure our members were a part of her learning process mm -hmm. um, from a wide variety of neighborhoods in, Doc in, in Dorchester and in Roxbury and Mattapan and East Boston. We made sure that uh, parents were participating in her focus groups and yeah. giving her feedback. And I personally went to all of her meetings to make sure that, you know, I'm a good ambassador from what I've learned from our parents as well. So, yeah. um, do you feel like a lot of what was said by the parents in those meetings is reflected in the plan? I do. I, I think a lot of it is. Um, what we have learned mm -hmm. um, fundamentally that I would love to just see a little bit more of mm. is, you know, really an addressing of the belief gap. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's something critical that is the big elephant in the room for parents that mm. we just don't understand. It's say what you mean by belief gap. So what I have learned through our focus groups and our meetings and having thousands of conversations with Boston parents is that what parents in Boston fear mm. is that the educators in our classrooms mm. fundamentally mm. do not believe that our children are capable of proficiency. Right. Like it, it's the problem about, well, what do, you, what do you want us to do with these kids from right. these people? You know, some of us have, have grown up in this system. Right. 
You know, it's not easy to pull the wool over our eyes. And so having been in many of these classrooms and seen the way that some educators have looked at us, you know, and now we have to hand our children over to the same system and you don't see any changes, what parents want to see is the addressing of that issue, professional development amongst educators. And so many of our educators in the Boston Public Schools don't live in our community. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to say, well, you know, I did the best I can, you know, now I'm going to go back home to Medway. You know, it's because of that. So you're talking about expectations, really. Expectations. And expectations we know are critical to the success of students' performance. And, And what you're saying is that you feel like the expectations of some of the teachers in our public school system are not high enough. For because if we, we can change the curriculum. And kids can feel that. Yeah. We can change right. the building. That's right. You know, we can even give them a, a higher quality, nutritious lunch. Right. But if the educator's leading the classroom, right. you know, look at our kids and say, well, you know, this is the best they can do. Right. If they don't believe our kids are capable, not just of proficiency, but excellence, yeah. by virtue of the fact that they're black, they're brown, they're low income, you know, we know that, even poverty issues, yeah. although they do impact our kids, yeah. they're not. It's not insurmountable. Well, no, especially our, well, right. It, it's almost like you have to kind of bar against them with having stronger expectations and more diligence around making sure that we're providing students with what they need to hit those higher expectations. And if we do not fundamentally believe right. that our kids are capable then we're never going to challenge them. We're never going to give them the opportunity. We're never going to push them and say, I believe in you. You can take a look at our our AP rates, mm-hmm. like the kids that actually go into the advanced placement classes. Yeah. And why don't more black and brown children access our AP classes? Right. You know, the majority of our children in the Boston public schools are black and brown. The majority of them are Latino. Right. But you don't see that reflected in AP classes. Yeah. You don't see it in the exam schools. Right. You cannot tell me that that is the result of, you know, well, you know, the black and brown kids just aren't as smart. Of course they are, but they are not being given the opportunity for accessing the advanced work they need to get on the path towards those opportunities. And it starts all the way back in kindergarten. It does. Right, or, or pre-kindergarten. What, what I'd also like to see, you know, there's only 13 of our Boston public high schools that are accredited. Yes. Out of 33. Crazy. Like, we're not even covering the the basics here. Right. So lots so, of those schools don't have AP. And lots of them don't have AP. Right. They don't have like the, you know, adequate staffing. They don't have adequate bathrooms. They don't have safe They don't have science labs. They So the idea Let me ask you a question about this though because so it's interesting to me because we from, from if you if you just look at number of seats available in the high schools across the city and the number of students that are high school age. It's, it, it doesn't work out. The math doesn't work. We have way more seats than we do students. Mm-hmm. And I, I am not, I mean, I, ha, I do not really understand this at its core, but what I've been told is the reason you can't aggregate schools, right? So get rid of some buildings and, and have fewer fewer buildings to fill all of the state seats, right? So, which would, I guess, mean less teachers, maybe. Mm-hmm. And you, But then you set up the schools so that they all at least meet mass core and and then beyond that i've heard that the biggest pushback comes from parents you're the biggest parent organizer in the state is is that the case i, I don't i don't think that that is the case i think what what happens in in i think really it's it's part of a misinformation campaign i, I really yeah 
Because it's because what ends up happening? Okay, if we're going to be real talk here, which I try to be all the time, is that you know we can't have consolidation of schools, yeah, and we cannot right size the district because that would impact the union revenue model. Okay, Mm. if you have less schools, you have less bodies. That's less money. That's less power. I was just playing that that. out as I was talking about it. It was like you know if you because you would consolidate schools, but you would probably increase the number of available classes, right, and and the number of different levels of classes so that you could meet the needs of all kids. And getting the kids access to the highest quality right. schools. Like you would think right. like, okay, well, you just make them all high quality schools. You just say, okay, let's scrap all, like exactly. let's scrap this notion of having low performing schools. Let's make them all high performing. Let's hire against this new set of expectations that we have for schools. Exactly. And then let's deliver I mean, those expectations to students. A $1.2 billion yeah. education budget annually uh, and we are trying to maintain it as if we have 90,000 kids in the district right because we have all these buildings and all these people and they've got to be manned and then we've got to have you know a mess in the bowling building to manage all these buildings and all of these people and everything else right the fact of the matter is we only have about what 54 52,000 kids in the right. Boston public schools right so it would make sense well you know if we have less buildings you know, let's figure out the buildings that are working, yeah. that are functional, right. the right teachers that are functional and are doing right by our kids, the right the schools that are embracing curriculum that works, that yeah. is impactful, the most innovative opportunities for kids. Yeah. You know, all of that makes sense. Because this is your other point. Your third, your third um, request is innovation. Innovation, yeah. yes, because you know this is this is a, another key to what parents want mm-hmm. and what we have learned. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, it, I kind of equate it, and this may seem a little goofy to you. You know, when when people you know get engaged, they're so excited about the wedding day. Yeah, they we have two of them downstairs. Oh it's yeah, yeah, very, it's a lot, very, a lot of excitement. Oh yeah, a lot of love, a <laughs> lot of excitement, all oh. about this one day. Are you gonna break their hearts right now? No, <laughs> well, yeah, maybe a little advice from a woman who's now okay. you know entering into her forties here. What I've learned. Um, it's wonderful, uh-huh. but it's the wedding day is one day. Right. You really got to concentrate on the marriage, right. the lifetime the commitment that you're making. Yeah. So parents, when we take a look at education, we're thinking about the lifelong commitment. Yeah. Like we're not just trying to get our kids to graduation day, the wedding day. Yeah. We're thinking about career pathways. We're thinking about how do we prepare our kids for opportunity? Yeah. And are we doing the right things and making the right moves? We need innovation because we want our kids to have the high-tech jobs of the future. We hear Marty Walsh talking about all of these high-tech jobs of the future, but then we have cool the schools in the city of Boston with 7% proficiency in ELA and 9% in math. Those kids are not accessing the high-tech jobs of the future. That's right. It's not happening. They're not getting into MIT and Harvard and all of these wonderful colleges we have here yeah. because they can't get there. Right. And frankly, if you have 13 accredited high schools mm. uh, out of 33 mm. and you're, la- you're taking a look at the Boston Globe's valedictorian right. story saying, well, why aren't these kids you know, launching? If you're the valedictorian of an unaccredited high school, what are you exactly? Yeah, exactly. Like, what does that even mean? Right. Like, where is that story? Right. Like, I, oh, I don't understand. It was the first thing not. I asked actually when I saw that when I saw that story because, yeah, what I mean, some of those kids, what were the standards that they were held to in order to graduate? 
Exactly. So are we just getting them to a piece of paper? Parents don't just want to get our kids to a piece of paper. Yeah. But again, we're not education policy experts. So we go to our kids and we say, babies, listen, if you do everything you possibly can and you work your hardest and you get A's on your report cards and you graduate and you're the valedictorian of your school, you are going to be successful. You're going to go to college. But if the school is not providing adequate education mm-hmm. and those A's on the report card don't mean anything right. because they're not telling us whether or not our kids are adequately prepared, they're not telling us whether our kids are at grade level, then you get them to the to the doors, if you're lucky, mm. of, of secondary education, mm-hmm. of, of higher education, mm-hmm. uh, to our college, even a community college. And they've got to take two years of remedial courses before they can take a college level course. Which they have to pay for. Which is work they should have done in high school. Exactly. We call it a black and brown tax at MPU because mm. it's our kids that have to take we we have to, that's real money. Yeah. You know, and then you take a look at the completion rates for our kids right. in two and four year colleges and you wonder why we're not completing because we've yeah. got to pay for two years. Right. To make up for the but, inadequate education we face through K through 12. And that's another way, reason why I'm not interested in listening to politicians talking about how courageous they are for saying, we're going to make college free. Right. Well, that's because you don't have the courage to fix K through 12. Right. So. Right. What's most important to you for 2020? And then you must also be thinking about kind of the whole decade. Overcoming the achievement gap is not impossible. How do you measure it? Just by by test scores and things like that. Test scores, proficiency. Mm-hmm. People are love to vilify test scores and oh, the numbers don't say everything. Well, you know what? I I know they don't say everything. Right. And yes, I I do want my children to be joyful learners, but my kids cannot eat joy yeah. when they can't get a job right. because they can't read. That's right. You know that's not a joyful existence. That's not a joyful life that they're going to be experiencing. That's right. So. It's all about implementation. It's about accountability. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that uh, promises are kept. And in Boston, that is going to mean taking a look at you know some really, really difficult reports that are going to be coming out of the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Those are imminent, right? They are. Yeah. We're taking a look at an audit. Yeah. We have been kicking the can down the road in Boston for more than 50 years. Right. The time has come for aggressive leadership. Mm -hmm. And so what we're looking to do is hold folks accountable on all levels. Mm -hmm. So not just Marty Walsh, Mm -hmm. but the commissioner Mm -hmm. and the governor, frankly, Mm -hmm. because the idea that Governor Charlie Baker, who is known, you know, throughout the country as being this, you know, education innovator, fighter, he's an education governor. I want to see some backbone. Mm -hmm. I want to see he's the most popular governor in America. Use some of that popularity to help our children. What would you like to see him do? I would like to see him Mm -hmm. um, have a very uh, aggressive, honest, real talk conversation Mm -hmm. with the mayor of Boston, Mm -hmm. with the commissioner of education, Jeff Riley, Mm -hmm. uh, to say, you know, we need a plan for Boston. There are 45 schools that should be taken over by the state. Yeah. uh, Making the district. Because they're all hovering at level five. All hovering at level five. Yeah. And it's because of politics, frankly, that Mm -hmm. a lot of them are not in level five. It's because of politics that the city of Boston has not been taken over by the state. There mm-hmm. is no reason why. But, the city but of just being taken over by the state isn't a solution. It's not. There's just been so much turnaround. Do you think the new so superintendent needs time now to rebuild a team and rebuild? 
a um, plan? You know what? I maybe, but yeah. the the fact of the matter is, is that like she seems lovely. You know, she she yeah. seems full of love and light. But you know, it's been fifty years. Right. And At the same time, parents are fed up. Time, like, right. and you know, while we want to be nice to the superintendent, like again, I'm not here for you know, the wants of adults. I'm here for the needs of children. Yeah. And the children of Boston have been crying out for 50 years. Yeah. How many children have we lost? Yeah. And if you're a person like me that believes that talent is equitably distributed, but opportunity is not, yeah. don't you think every day, like, gosh, who did we lose? Yeah. Who did we lose? Right. Like what, what, you know, what cancer did we not yeah. find a cure for? Right. You know, did, could we have been so farther along in our society because we lost all that brain talent? You know, oh. folks like me, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm nothing special, but I'm pretty smart. Yeah, and you are. I, I almost got thrown away. Yeah, you know? that's right. So to, so last question before we go. It, you um, told me as, as we just started that you um, are becoming part of a national parents organization or that there will finally be a national parent, parents organization around education and things that um, your organization is fighting for. Can you talk a little bit about that and what's happening? Yes, we're so excited. It's very, it's, it's amazing. It's really, it's really Someone needed to it's organize awesome. parents so, in this way. Uh, my sister Alma, who um, is the former founder of the LA Parents Union in California, she founded this organization called La Comadre. This is your sister? Uh, she's my sister of the heart. Sister so of the yes, heart. Yes, we're, huh. we're family. Well, I want to be your sister of the heart Yes, too. you <laughs> are, girl. But anybody who can buy up that much turkey and be like, let's pizza. Like, you, you are a, a, a chola. As we would say, <laughs> uh, that's gangster. Um, so, like, we, she was doing this beautiful work in California. Yeah. And, you know, she's the former Latino vote director of the Obama campaign, and she's an, an yeah. organizer. You yeah. know, she grew up in, in Watts, and, yeah. you know, we, we have similar uh, upbringing and have kind of used our organizing skills to bring families together. And she was doing this work in California. I do it in Massachusetts. Mm. We get phone calls all the time through this work saying, oh my gosh, Carrie, you're doing such powerful things in, in Massachusetts or in California. We need help in Colorado. Can you yeah. come to Washington State? Can you come to Tennessee? And, you know, it's other mamas calling us. So, of course, we come. Yeah. But, you know, we don't have the resources. Like, I just yeah. try to do what I can. And, and you know, often we're put in these political situations where folks just, if they had a little bit of professional development, if they knew mm. they had a posse, yeah. they could build their backbone a little bit. And, and frankly, on the national level, we need to have a national voice. We yeah. don't have a national voice of parents and families so our priorities are all out of whack, especially, you know, you take a look at the presidential candidates and their platforms. Mm. It's, you know, you're not even talking about outcomes for children. No. It just doesn't make sense. No, I know. That bothers me a yeah. lot. Yeah, well, yeah. that's why we want to change this. So we have organized, you know, Massachusetts Parents United is beautiful and unique, but it's not mm -hmm. that unique because there are beautiful pockets of parent power across the country yep. and in Puerto Rico. Yep. So we have delegates from all 50 states. So this is really a voice for great education. It is. And it's for safe places for, equitable, for everyone. Equitable access to high yep. quality education, yep. safer neighborhoods, yep. stronger families. Yep. Our families, our children are the future. Yeah. And so if we're not concentrated around what children and families need, like we're not planning well for what we want our nation to be. So I now I just got goosebumps. It's, it's just going to be amazing. Yeah. So we have Ilyasa Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X, is doing our keynote. Oh so my goodness. we're bringing in some. Where is this? This is in New Orleans. Oh my gosh. In New Orleans, um, and that is uh, actually next week. It's it's oh. January sixteenth. We kick off. 
And so oh, it's congratulations. We're voting. We're creating it. It's it's yeah. going to be created by all these delegates. We have, you know. Are you going to get every 18, 19, and 20-year-old across the America to join <laughs> you as well? I always say, because they always say, well, is this going to be like a teacher's union? I said, like, I can't pass a law that says, like, everybody who becomes a parent has to pay us dues and has to join our union. Like, that's not the way we're going to work. Yeah. But there are such But you amazing, need voters. Yeah. And, and we are the voters. Yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. Parents have not been organized. And that's what makes us so powerful. Right. That we are the that's constituents, right. That's right. and we have a lot of power. That's right. And that's why Massachusetts Parents United can get so much done, and that's why we're getting so much done nationally. So we're very excited. We cannot wait, and uh, you know, it's just going to be extraordinary. Mm. Well, Carrie, I always have so much fun talking to you. We have to do this more. I know it's enough. so much fun. Thank you so very much, much for coming in today. Thank you really for having me. It. I'm so happy to be here. This is so wonderful. Absolutely, and congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thank you for joining my conversation with Carrie Rodriguez, AKA the Edu Mom. Carrie's work in organizing parents around raising our expectations and execution in education is extraordinary. If you would like to find out more about her work and Mass Parents United, please check our blog post for links to her organization. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.